the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Clarity Christian College, formerly known as Florida Bible College. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Now, if you go to various churches uh, around the country, not just on the island, but here as well, you could almost get all sorts of information from the pulpit about how to live your life, how to have a good marriage, how to get out of debt. All are important biblical truths, but often you will never really find out what does a true Christian really believe about what we'll call five important teachings or five doctrines about God from which then we get our daily Christian walk or daily Christian life. And so I would like to submit those to you in the next five Sundays that I'm with you. The first one that we're going to talk about today is the one about God's mind on paper. What I would like to do from the teaching today is to let you know why we as a believer in Christ believe that the Bible is the superior book that was ever written, inspired by God, for man to follow, to believe, and to obey. And I'm going to open that up in just a moment. The other four teachings that we're going to study in the weeks to come, next week I would like to submit to you the whole concept about who God is and why we ought to trust this God and how that God works in our life. Now for some of you that already say, I believe there's a God and I already accept all of that, here's a question for you. If you were sitting on a bus bench waiting to go somewhere on the island and you got into a conversation about religion with someone next to you and they began to challenge you on the existence of God, how far do you think you could get in that conversation? Now that's the man on the street, perhaps on a bus bench. But probably more important even than that would be if you struck up a conversation with some children or family members or your grandkids and they began to question the very bedrock upon which you thought they believed, which was God, how far do you think you could get in a conversation talking about the existence and the reality of God? And then the third doctrine, the third teaching we're going to talk about is Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people around that you could read about that often will try to dress like Christ and wear all these different garbs and even say that they're Christ or they're the Savior, they're the Messiah, they're the Redeemer. And again, who really is the true, genuine Jesus Christ? In fact, the Christ of the Bible. And then we hear a lot about the Holy Spirit or supernatural power or the unseen world of all of that. Who is the Holy Spirit and how does he manifest himself? Is it through supernatural actions or tongues or whatever else? How would we recognize who the Holy Spirit is and how is the Holy Spirit in relationship to Jesus Christ and God? Are they three separate or are they three the same? And then finally we're going to end on what I believe is the most important truth that ties it all together. Sure, we can be, believe that there's a God and have the right God and the only God. We could know that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords and He is the Savior. We could know the whole ministry and the personhood of the Holy Spirit and have all four of those correct. But if we don't have number five nailed down, when we die, and we all will die, there is existence after death, whatever your belief system might be. 
And it's that fifth one that will guarantee that when you die, you'll spend eternity in a place, a real place called heaven, with truly all of your sins forgiven. A place of great joy worshiping the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about salvation being by faith alone and truly the only way to get to heaven. And that'll be the fifth truth. Well, today I want to speak to you, though, more about how we know the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now, perhaps some of you could be a little bit like me at the beginning of my understanding of the Bible. I grew up in a home where we never had a Bible in our house. We never said grace. We never went to church. But there was some, I guess, unspoken teaching that the Bible must be God's mind on paper, that this is truth and it's the highest truth, the most important information you would ever want to find about God. So I had some bit of a relative confidence in a Bible even though I didn't know the Old Testament from the New Testament or all the different books of the Bible or hardly any of the stories. Now I find myself going to school and being invited to a youth meeting by Carol when I was 16. So I sat in the youth meeting and the youth pastor was very wise. He opened up the Bible and before he ever explained to us how to live or even how to go to heaven, he showed us how we could trust the Bible being inspired. Well, I kind of half listened to that because I didn't have trouble. He wasn't trying to convince an agnostic or an atheist. I just, okay, you believe it, I believe it, we're fine with all of that. And so I went right into believing that Jesus died, rose again, and I placed my faith in Christ. Now, that was on a Thursday night. There was no school on Friday. Monday, I'm now in school. In about my third or fourth class, we were in what is known as study hall. I don't know if they have them much here in Hawaii, but when I was growing up, they would give us in high school one hour a day so we could do our homework and do study. And it was in the library. But I was so excited about knowing that my sins were forgiven and that I was going to heaven that I started telling those that are around me, hey, guess what? You can have eternal life by faith in Christ. I was so excited. Now, here's where the rub came. One of the students in the class challenged me and he said, where, where is heaven? And I said, well, heaven is up, you know, it's, it's out there. He says, well, I believe that you exist in what is known as a fourth dimension. And do you know, once he said that, I could show him no verse in the Bible why I knew the Bible was inspired. I could not either agree nor refute what he had to say, nor could I ever give any objective, valid reasons of why I would believe that there is a God, let alone why I would believe in Christ and why I even believed I'd be going to heaven. I couldn't do that. Reality Ranch slapped me in the face about who Christ is and who the Bible is from that one little kid. Now, let me say this very quickly. Most of us probably know people that don't believe the Bible's inspired in some degree. So let me just ask you, is that true? How many of you know of someone that's in your sphere of uh, influence that does not know or does not agree that the Bible is God's mind on paper fully and sufficient? Would you raise your hand? Okay, that's not uncommon. If you had any kind of conversation with people, you either know it or pretty much can assume it by things that they have said. Now here's a question. How many of you believe that you could go in a loving way, toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with those people and be able to stay in a conversation long enough to be able to bring them to the understanding that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on that. Some of you probably could get into that conversation and you may last in this little boxing ring for a little while. Some of you longer than others. But I want you to know that it's our responsibility as Christians that while we may not be able to answer every ism and spasm of a belief system out there, we ought to be able to answer enough of them so it at least causes that person to question their own belief system and perhaps place some doubt in it. At least go that far. Now, 
It's important for us to know this. Those who challenge us on our belief, however they do that, they're not the enemy. Folks, listen very carefully as Christians. They are not monsters. Sometimes we think that anybody who doesn't believe the way we do, no matter how ludicrous they are or how sacrilegious they are, that they happen to be somewhat of religious monsters to God. I would like to tell you that they're really not. Maybe I could share this little visual for you. Many of them are like drowning in life. And they're out in this big Pacific Ocean. And they think that they're going to be going down. Some way they just can't make it. And all around them, people are dropping little wooden pieces of toothpicks. And so they're grabbing these and they're thinking that those little toothpicks will really hold them up. Also around them are a bunch of life preservers. And there are other people clinging to life preservers. And you wonder, why would they hold on to these toothpicks and not go after the life preserver? Unfortunately, there is an unseen force known as Satan who has convinced another group of people to be able to tell people that those who are clinging to life preservers are using it as a crutch or that those life preservers aren't real or you're a fool if you cling to those life preservers. All these people that are doing, hanging onto these toothpicks, are just doing what they think is the very best for them. They are just at a degree of ignorance. So we don't marginalize them. What we do as much as possible, cling tightly to our life preserver, swim to them, and do what we can to engage them into the realization that that toothpick will not hold them up and that they still can be saved. Let me share this with some of you here very much. I, I would not doubt for a fact that some of you, if you had the opportunity to come to this microphone, you would say that you were holding on to a toothpick at one time in your life. And that a person loved you enough not to marginalize you nor to condemn you, but swam to you and showed you that life preserver. And you grabbed that. And now you are where you are today. So if you are clinging to a, a toothpick on the radio listening to this or got a CD from what I'm saying or even here today, I want you to know I'm not speaking down to you. I would be grabbing that same toothpick that you are too. But I just hope that whatever's going on in our world, that for just a moment we would then look at this toothpick and realize that people are still going under carrying their toothpicks because it cannot support them. And to still look at those people, no matter how they might act, how they might flounder around, but they're still hanging on to that life preserver. So I want to submit that to you. You know, this is our presidential year, so I thought I might talk to you a little about some of those that are our presidents and what they had to say about the Bible, God's mind on paper. So I did a research, and I'm not going to bring to you all of it because there's just so much of it. So many of our presidents had a belief about Scripture. Whether they were believers in Christ or not, or, or so or not, I don't know that. I do know that they recognized the superiority of the Bible. George Washington, in the 18th century, as I've been reading and studying his biography, and I've been reading a number of those, and I found out that he was so committed to the Bible that during the Revolutionary War, he made it. Uh, a command to his people, his men, that they would have a chapel service every Sunday, no matter where they were, and he would ride throughout the camps making sure that the Bible was spoken or read or provided as much to his men as he possibly could, because he knew the value of it. As I move into the 19th century, I selected pretty much an unknown president. His name was John Quincy Adams, and here's what he said. He said, the first and almost the only book deserving universal attention is the Bible. I speak as a man of the world and say to you, search the scriptures. Now we fast forward into the 20th century and there are a number of presidents in that century, our century. And here's what William McKinney said. And I picked this out from William McKinley in 1897 and 1901. He was a genuine believer in Christ. That much I did find out. And he wrote this. He said, the more profoundly we study this book and more closely we observe its divine precepts, the better citizens will become and the higher the destiny of our nation will be. 
And so he really had a lot to say about the Bible and that was his belief. Now while it's his belief, I'm going to tell you that no matter who else is clinging to a life preserver, if we do not cling to that same life preserver, then we will go down no matter how much we're glad for the other people and what they believe. There is only one life preserver. And so what I've done is I've, I've kind of gone back in my history and I passed out a bunch of questions to my pastoral staff and to some of our missionaries, believe it or not. And I said, I've got so many questions about the Bible, but I only have so much time to speak to our people. And so I let them pick out some of my questions. Now, not all of them responded to my request to answer what I wanted on questions. Then I went back and I thought, what were the questions that were most asked to me when I engaged in a conversation about the veracity of Scripture? And I, I picked six of them. Now, there could be 60 of them. There could be 6,000 questions. But maybe these six will get us off and running in the direction to go deeper into understanding why we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God and why we as Christians can confidently and unashamedly hold up our head in a world that would like to denigrate Christianity and the Bible and everything else that we might hold dear. So here's my question. The first one starts a little benign because I want to give it to those that are just coming into this. The first question I'm asked is, what's the Bible? How did you get the word Bible? Why do we call it a Bible in all of this? Well, often now we just relegate the term Bible as, see, as something as, it's an important writing. In fact, if you Google, you might find what is known as the Shooter's Bible. And it's a book filled with all different kinds of weaponry you can get. And it's the Bible of weaponry. So they call it the Shooter's Bible. Some of you that are involved in surfing as I am, even at one time have what is known as the Surfer's Bible. And in it is all the information you'd ever want to know about what beaches to go and what boards to ride and how to get up on a board and who are the famous surfers and all of that. The Surfer's Bible. And so we now take the word Bible and we kind of throw it out as anything that contains as much information or a thorough, comprehensive study on a topic. Well, part of that is true. This is a comprehensive study on everything that God wants us to know about himself in life. And so it's the Bible. But more technically, do you know the very first Greek word in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, starts even with the word biblios. So we're starting to get it from that, and I'm going to shorten down the etymology of this. And you get into the 4th century, and you're going to find a man by the name of Jerome, one of our early fathers of the faith. And he then took all this together, and he now calls it the Divine Library. So it became reduced now to a series of books in a divine library. In fact, one wag said this, the Bible is this, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Isn't that good? Basic instructions before we leave earth. Well, I know that sounds like a kitty thing there, but I need to tell you though that it is that simple. Knowing the Bible as being God's mind on paper can be as deeply researching and academic as you want it to be, or it can be just as simple as the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. And it's wherever you are, as long as you're holding the life preserver of the Bible. All right, here's the second question that I'm asked. We usually get into this is the Bible, and I begin to talk about inspiration. And the phrase comes out, verbal plenary inspiration. Now, that's a term that usually the person with whom I'm engaged in this conversation, they don't usually use the word verbal plenary inspiration. I generally have to bring that up, and it's important, and you're going to know why, and that's why I'm teaching you this. You'll hear the word inspired because we'll say, well, this is, uh, you know, this is God's mind on paper. This is, this is inspired. And so now you've got to explain what is inspiration. And you can't do it by just saying inspiration. So let me give you verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means every word that is contained in the Bible. Every word. That means there's no word in there that is not inspired. Every word that God had breathed to us that he wanted us to know is in the Bible. That's the verbal. 
Plenary means that it's every part of this Bible. There's no section of it that's not inspired of the Lord. So every word and every part is inspired. Which now brings us to that little phrase, inspired. Well, without trying to give you the Greek word, that's not as important that you know Greek. What you do need to know is what it means. That word for inspired is a word that means God breathed. Now, the word in is the word in or in, God breathed in. So what God did is God had his mind and he wanted us to know a part of his mind, that much of his mind, so that he then inbreathed into writers what he wanted us to know so they could record it. Now it doesn't necessarily mean that he was dictating to them because each writer was using their personality. Often the writers were even using phraseology that would come from their lifestyle. But all of it was still what God wanted us to know about him through those writers. So it was God-breathed, verbal, plenary, inspiration. Can you say those three words with me? Let's try it. You can see it up on the screen or on your paper. Let's do it together. Verbal, plenary, inspiration. And you may need to use that if you're talking to a high academic scholar. But when you're just talking maybe to the man on the street or the guy at the beach, just explain to them that it's every word of every part of this Bible right here has been inspired in breathe by God it's God's mind on paper well then they talk about well how do you know it's accurate so then the question is what about the inerrancy of it is it inerrant so this is every word every part God breathe how do we know that it's accurate well that's what inspiration is all about and that's the phrase I've given it to you that it's completely free from error when we say it's inerrant that means it's without error in it will it contain lies yes people telling lies God even recorded that but is this book a book that God lies to us in. No, it is not. God does not lie. In fact, his nature is he cannot lie. He can't even want to lie. He cannot lie, Titus chapter 1. So this is inerrant. That means there are no errors in it. Now those of you that are outside the faith and you're still holding on and grabbing maybe even more um, toothpicks, that's all right. But I want you to know the, you can have as many toothpicks as you want. You can spend the rest of your life gathering toothpicks but you'll never gather enough that's going to save you from spiritually eternally drowning. So now we have a book. That's a Bible, a collection of books. It happens to be every word, every part, God breathed to the writers, and it's free from error. Well, that then brings us the next question that when I engage a conversation, they ask me, and that is this. Well, how do you know that all the right books are in the Bible? What about, first of all, the religion known as Roman Catholicism? They have extra books in the Bible called the Apocryphal books. And what about those that are finding these new hidden lost books today? How do we know all of that? Well, again, this is not an apologetics class, but it is enough to give you something to think about. And that is to let you know that we have all the books that are necessary that we need to know today for this. And the word, the more technical word, is the word called canonicity. Now, canonicity is a word we don't use in our normal vocabulary. If I'm speaking to other leaders and we're talking about the veracity of Scripture, I might throw the word canonicity out. Don't throw that word out to people. They won't know what it means. It's important that you know what it means, and should you use that word, it might be helpful for them to know what it means. So I'm going to teach it to you so that together you'll know what the word canon and canonicity means. All right. The word canon actually comes from a word that means rod or straight rod or a ruler. In other words, it's so accurate, it is the measuring stick. All right, so that's the rod, that's the canon, that's the stick. It measures something. So you can take whatever is out there, whatever you say is the length of that stick, and if it's right or wrong, you'll only know it based on this stick because this stick is the standard, all right? So that's the canon. The concept of taking all of that other 
stuff out there and putting up against this stick, that's showing that it's canonicity. This fits the rules of canonicity. Now, some of you, that's still a very big concept to you, so let me share it with you, perhaps from another, another perspective. Um, I have in my pocket here my cell phone. Now, I shut it off because I don't want it to disturb anyone's worship. You know, we come in here, we shut it off so that nobody gets distracted from worshiping the Lord. So I'm going to turn it on for just a moment. Obviously, if I have a call that's coming in, it's going to let me know, but that's not why I'm doing this. So watch carefully, or at least, least listen. I'm turning this on, and if you turned your cell phones on, please don't. <laughs> but if you did, it's going to tell you about who made the cell phone, what company is your service, blah, blah, blah. It might even have a nice little picture in the back. It'll tell you how many bars you have for how much signal you have. Can you hear me now? Can you, can you hear me now? And I don't have an army coming out behind me, all right? But here's what it does show me. On the screen, it says that it's 1124 a.m. That's the time it says right here. How many of you, if you, turn, if, if you turned on your cell phones, it would tell you the time? Would you raise your hand? Isn't it odd that when you turn your cell phone off when you go on a flight, and then you turn the cell phone on, and always when we fly, if we're going off island, into another time zone, that your phone will kind of... And then it'll... When it goes and gives you the time, it's the time zone of the area in which your phone is. How many of you have a phone that does that? Would you raise your hand? Now the big question is, is where does it come from? What's what this hooked to? All right, It's hooked to what is known as the atomic clock. Now the atomic clock is so accurate, and I've got all these statistics. If you want to see my research, I'm not going to burden you with all of that. But this atomic clock is so accurate, and it sets out a signal, a proper radio signal through satellite systems, and it's given to, believe it or not, the article said, it's given to the television and radio stations so they can keep their broadcast on time. And secondly, it's given to the GPS systems for those of you that have GPS in your cars and vehicles, etc., and into the phone system. So that is called the atomic clock. All right, that atomic clock is like a cannon. That, not cannon like a shooting cannon, but a cannon like in Scripture. It's a standard. It's a rule. But it's also that which we judge all of the rest of our clocks. Now, I'm wearing a, a watch right here. Now, my watch right here is probably a few seconds off from my cell phone, which is connected to the atomic clock. So this is not an atomic clock here, but to test its canonicity, to test its accuracy, I then put it up against my phone, which is then tied to the atomic clock. Now, watch very carefully. Even this phone is not as accurate as an atomic clock because it's so fast, that atomic clock, and so accurate that by the time it sends a signal to the satellite to my phone, there's a, a milli, 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 second something that doesn't show up, and therefore, it's still not going to be 100% correct. If you all understand what I said in some degree, would you say, uh-huh? Good, I did that so you wouldn't hear me shut my phone off. All right, that's the idea of what is called canon. So what we have right here is the canon. This is the accurate truth of God's word. Now, the real question is, okay, if we have the accurate, how do we know the other books aren't accurate as well? What's the canon? What's the test? What's the reality of this? Which is now our next question. What are the basic tests applied to determine which books are to be found in the canon or the sacred scripture? There are five of these. Let's look at them very quickly. The first one is called divine authorship. Obviously, if it's God's mind on paper, that book has got to have the concept that God, through the Holy Spirit, through men, give a message to man. Is there a message that God wants us to know about his mind for us today? Is there a divine authorship? Is there a thus saith the Lord? Let me give you a pair of little parentheses here. Most 
of all the other writings that want to claim themselves to be inspired of God, often when you read it, we'll find phrases in there that will not say, thus saith the Lord, that it's also coming from some other earthly man. So even that shows you the suspectness of the canonicity of this one standard, divine authorship. Number two, or B, is human authorship. Obviously, there has to be something written by man. It's not just enough to be able to understand God by going to the beach and looking at the stars looking at the moon, looking at the mountains, looking at fire, looking at God's creation, although he will reveal himself through nature, the best way to accurately know who he is, he is not nature. It is not mother nature, it's not father nature, it's just God's creation. And he does reveal his beauty and his, his ability to organize, etc., and reproduce. There's a lot about God you can see in nature. But God is not nature, and he's chosen to primarily reveal truth to us through the word here. And so it's God speaking to us through certain writers. Now, if you will, let's go back up in your outline so you can see what I mean by human authorship under my definition of verbal plenary inspiration. You might need to back this up, Stephen, so they can see this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Would you follow along carefully? I know this sounds like I'm teaching more than preaching. I'm going to come back at the end to tie it all up. Here's what it says. All scripture, that means every part, every word, is given by, there's the word, inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, and simply it's profitable for teaching. What does it do? It'll reprove us, correct us, instruct us, and reign righteousness. So there's a purpose for us to know truth. And it starts out by saying, this is God's mind on paper, every bit of it. I especially like, folks, Second Peter 1.19. Please look at it in your Bible. It says, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. We'll talk about that in a moment. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. In other words, you do it all the time. Keep doing it. Then it says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private inbreathing or interpretation. This is Joe Pons, and I want to thank you for listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Clarity Christian College. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It's the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. That's makeitclear.org. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please email us at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. That's tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.